good morning, Creekside. Um, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, also, just a big sup to the youth. What's up, guys? They're they're joining us. Uh, I know their link. I know their lingo. If you guys need to know how to talk to them, I know how to talk to them. No cap. They know what I'm talking about. So, um, I'm pretty sure that was like 10 years old. But that's better than most of you are doing. I know that. Um, hey, so uh, my family and I are getting ready. We're in the beginning stages of planning a trip to Disneyland, which, um, you know, not bad. It's pretty exciting. Laura sold a kidney, so we're going to uh, use the money to head on down. Just kidding. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're excited to do it. So I mean, we've been like, it, we used to go all the time, and we have these, like, amazing memories. We used to live in Southern California, and my parents were uh, very generous and would buy us, like, season passes for a while. So we would go just all the time. We were like the one family, you know, every, every family in Disneyland their kids start acting up at a certain point, and all the parents are like, if you guys don't get it together, um, we're going to leave early, you know? And, um, like, everybody in the park knows that they're bluffing. Uh, the kids know that they're bluffing. It doesn't really help. But we were the ones that actually could say that and mean it because we lived, like, an hour away. So we're like, hey, we'll go. And we did a couple times. That's why these girls are so well-behaved. They're amazing. Um, so, uh, but anyways, this time, we're, we'll be bluffing if we say that. I'll just tell you girls up front. Um, but the whole thing, like, it's changed a lot since we were there. So we have these beautiful memories of, like, what it's like to be a family and be down there and just spend that, like, these days where, like, you're just together all day long and you're just having fun. It's amazing. I love it. Um, we've been talking to, to some friends and stuff about, like, what, is it, what does it look like to do Disneyland now? Because there's, now there's new things. Like, now you can have, as a wealthy person, a different experience at Disneyland than the poor people. Uh, so you can pay, like, for Genie Plus stuff and whatever. And there's all kinds of things. So we've been in the planning phases. And it just, it, it makes me think about, like, we're going to go down there. And the goal is family day. Beautiful time together, like, really investing. Um, but all the planning can sometimes get a little intense, right? Because it's all about, like, as a dad, you're like, man, efficiency. Like, let's get, like, savings on this. Let's be efficient with our time and everything. Let's make sure that we have as much fun, maximized fun as we possibly can. You get into the, the garage, and everyone's just like, get the kids' shoes on. Come on, grab them, go. Just leave the shoe. Let's get in the park. And they're just running from place to place, and everything's like... Um, Basically, in the pursuit of fun, everything becomes stressful, right? And you're like, you're worried about how much you're spending, and you're worried about like, we, oh, we forgot to get the fast pass for that ride. I know that's fast pass is not a thing anymore. Anyways, the whole trip that's meant to be about fun becomes kind of like a downer as Dad is like, you guys should be having more fun, and uh, it just kind of devolves. So, I feel like that's often the case in our humanness. We kind of just turn good, healthy things into these. Uh, soul-deadening kind of a things. And what we're going to see as we continue going through the Gospel of Mark is Jesus keeps running into the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are exactly these kind of people who are overthinkers, overplanners, overstructurers, and they get into this mode where um, everything for them is just like um, taking the fun, taking the life out of a thing that is meant to be this connection point with God. So what will that look like this morning? I'm just going to lead us straight there. We're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18, and this whole thing is going to center around fasting. So it says in uh, Mark chapter 2, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. All right, so the whole question centers around 
fasting, okay? And, and uh, you guys got to walk through this with uh, Nathan and the elders in the summer, uh, these spiritual disciplines that help us connect to the Lord. There's a very good and beautiful healthy side to the spiritual disciplines and to fasting in particular. So you walk through that. Fasting in its healthy approach um, is all about like abstaining for a time from food um, so that you can re- be reminded of the presence of God. That's what fasting is all about. So it's just saying, hey, I'm going to take a, a, a few hours or a day or whatever, and I'm not going to eat any food, and I'm going to let that hunger remind me of who God is. So that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's in the Old Testament. Um, we see it again in the New Testament. There's, there's healthy, good things about that. The dark side comes with the kind of question that Jesus gets asked here. So there's uh, John the Baptist. We've seen him. He's got his followers, and, and his, like, John is an intense dude, and his followers, they're fasting. So they're like, we're not going to eat food because we want to remember the Lord. Um, the Pharisees are the group. They're the religious leaders. They're like in charge. They're the ones that will tell you what it means to connect to God, how to follow the law, and all those kinds of things. And their disciples, they're sitting there, and they're fasting. Um, but then the question comes to Jesus, whether it's directly from the Pharisees or not. At this point, it's just questions. Um, but it's going to turn into something more intense later. In fact, last week we looked, uh, Nathan walked us through Jesus was sitting there eating with tax collectors and sinners, the kind of people that are not good company to keep, the kind of people that will get you in trouble if you're hanging out with them. And um, it was just a question, right? But it's like, why, Jesus, are you eating with them? It's just a question, but there's connotations. There's a tone of voice that religious people get good at uh, developing where you know it's just a question, so you can't get me in trouble with this, but you know and I know that I think you're less than I am by the way I'm asking this. I think that's kind of what's beginning to happen here. Certainly, as the story progresses, we see... Uh, an all-out assault on, like, Jesus, you are doing this wrong. So Jesus is here, and the question is, okay, why, like, all these serious religious people are fasting. Why aren't you and your disciples fasting? And so Jesus um, uh, will have to answer that question of why they are not fasting in this. I, I think what's interesting about it is, um, great, if the Pharisees, if, if John uh, and his disciples, they want to fast, they want to abstain from food for a time, that's fantastic, right? Do it. If that's helping you connect to the Lord, then go without food. It helps me connect to the Lord. That's amazing. Um, what's, what's unfortunate about it is it turns into a thing where they, they not only want to do it for themselves because it helps them, but they now want other people to see that they're doing it, right? And so they're going around, maybe they're kind of sucking in their cheeks a little bit and, you know, looking a little like puppy dog eyed, like, look how much I'm suffering because I'm so godly. So they want to be seen doing it. Um, and then the other problem is when you begin to look at the people around you and say, and why aren't you doing this, right? It becomes a platform that you stand on to show how religious I am, uh, what I'm doing, what I'm accomplishing, how good this is, how healthy this is for me, and everyone else is not as good, not doing it right, not living up to what you're wanting to do. Last week, they were mad that Jesus was eating with the wrong people. This week, the question comes, uh, why aren't you abstaining from food in the same way that we do? Jesus is going to walk this minefield through his whole ministry where he's just going through and he's helping people get away from the um, outward appearance of things and back to the heart. What is this whole thing about? So if we ask the question, what is this whole thing about? Religion, at its heart, the core of it all is about a connection with God, that there's a God that, um, that rules over everything, that made everything, and that God is wanting to connect with us. So he invites us to have this connection with him. That's the heart of the whole thing. So how ironic, then, a thing that's meant to be about a connection with God, when Jesus comes to earth, it's, it's God himself coming to earth. So how funny is it that when God came to earth to live as a human being, there were religious people standing by waiting and eager to tell him, like, hey, God, you're not doing this whole connection with God thing right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like um, 
the divine version of mansplaining a thing, you know? So they're just like, hey, God, you're clearly new at this. Let us show you how to uh, connect with God here. So um, there's an irony in it. Um, but the whole thing is like if, you, if even God isn't doing religion right, then probably you've got something wrong with your perception of the whole thing. I think that's what we're meant to see here. This is not anything new. Um, in Isaiah 58, if, you, if I could give you guys homework, Isaiah 58 is a really beautiful chapter in the Old Testament to read because the, the people have moved their hearts really far away from God. I mean, they, they were really not doing much with God himself, but man, were they keeping the religious uh, ceremonies and rituals in place. So anyone looking on would have been like, wow, look at how religiously spectacular these people are. But God, looking at their hearts, is like, man, you haven't like, connected with me seriously in, in ages. So God speaks to them in Isaiah 58 and says, look, you're, you're doing all these fasts, but like, I don't care. I don't want you fasting. Um, what I want, the fast that I want is for you to care for the poor people that are around you. And I want, I want you to show, so, show some compassion to the people that are in your life. That is what I want from you. So there's this tradition of God gives good things, good healthy ways for us to connect with him and show our love for him. And then uh, those things turn into the thing itself. They take all of our focus and they become the standard of are you doing it right or not. And there's this pattern of God calling people away like, stop, stop. You're doing the right things. You're doing them with the wrong heart and it's worthless. I think we're going to see some of that in Jesus answering this here. So Jesus' response is in verses 19 and 20. And he says to them, uh, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus' answer, a little bit strange, but uh, he is getting to, I think, the heart of religion itself into the idea of fasting, what it's all about. So religion, I think what Jesus is saying here, religion is all about celebrating the presence of God, celebrating the presence of Jesus. So he's saying, why would we fast right now? Um, this is a wedding feast, and I'm here as the groom in this feast, so like, why would we fast? It's a, it's a, it's a fasting is a note, um, noting, recognizing that there's an absence here, that, that the, the bridegroom is gone, and so we're fasting to, he's like, I'm here though, so like, let's celebrate. So I think he's saying religion is all about pr celebrating the, the presence of God. He's here with us, and the reason that religion exists at all, or should, is because we're saying God is here as a human being. He's here with us. He loves us. He cares for us. He's also God in heaven that's looking down. He's also the spirit that's, um, that's invigorating us. So he's here. We celebrate that. And then fasting becomes a way for us to look at that presence and say, yes, Jesus was here, and he's still, still kind of here with me, but also he's gone back to the Father. So Jesus, when he was on earth, he lived his life. He was here with us. He eventually um, died and, and paid for all of our sin, and then he went and returned to the Father. So he's still kind of with us. He's also kind of not. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, while I'm here, why would you fast? While I'm gone, yeah, then fasting makes some sense because you're mourning uh, my absence in that sense. Fasting, when we do it, it should be about acknowledging that something's missing, okay? So the question is, like, should we fast? And I don't think Jesus is saying, no, never fast. But I think he's saying, well, when you fast, make it about this sense of, like, there's something missing. I'm missing, and you're longing for that. So I think the question is, if you're asking, should we fast or not, is uh, do you, in your heart, in your, in your spirit, do you have a sense that something is missing, Right? There's probably like two people in here that are like, no, everything in my life is fantastic. Everything is great. And you're super smiley and everything's always happy and rainbows. Most of us are, life can be pretty darn good at times, but there is something missing, right? There's like an ache that I feel um, deep down inside of me, right? And that ache is a lot like hunger. So when I haven't eaten for a while, it's not the easiest thing for me to do. I do fast from time to time. I only ever do it for short periods. I'm not like 
some Hercules with this kind of thing. But um, when you do, there's this like real ache that hunger brings on where you're just like, okay, that is unpleasant, right? And sometimes it actually hurts and you're like, oh, there's something, like the reason my body is doing that is because something is missing, right? My body loves food, needs food. And so, and that's like legitimate. That's what God made us to be. In a spiritual sense, that ache, that sense of like, man, you know, life is good, but there still is just something missing. Even for those of us that know that the Lord is what we're missing, um, even for those of us that have him, there's still that sense of like, I don't feel your, I don't feel your presence here. Like, I believe you're here with me, but I don't feel that all the time. And right now I, I feel like that's absent. And so there's this, this ache that's a lot like hunger of like, there's something more that I want to experience. And so uh, I think Jesus is saying, when you feel that ache, that longing, that's a good time to go without food for a time so you can feel the ache of your hunger and connect that to, okay, and that's just like my spiritual ache for the presence of the Lord. It's a reminder with our bodies and with our souls um, that there's something more that we're longing for. It's so good for us in our daily life to just live this whole thing and to remember there's something that we're missing. So Jesus, to do this, to make this point, um, he compares the kingdom itself to a wedding feast and he compares himself to the groom in that wedding feast. It's a really cool way to, to picture. I love that when he's tr- trying to describe, okay, what is religion all about? He doesn't say, okay, it's like a, it's like a church service uh, that never ends, you know? Amen? You guys are like, yeah, please. Like, tell us about it. They, they join us on communion Sundays, and I think it's lovely, but I guarantee they have a lot more fun in the youth room. So um, it, he's, he's not like, hey, it's like, a, you guys, this is amazing. Religion is a never-ending church service. No, he's like, it's like a wedding feast. It's like, it's like a time that we gather together, and there's something good that we're celebrating, and we're just there, and we're eating and drinking together. It's a party, and we love it. I love that Jesus' default description of what the kingdom of God is like is a wedding feast. It's beautiful. I love that he describes himself as the groom, like, hey, I'm the one that you're here to celebrate. Um, as like a little bonus, in the Old Testament, that wedding imagery that's like being um, married together is the, uh, an Old Testament picture that comes up a lot, but it's always Yahweh, that's the groom. So the wedding is about Yahweh coming to marry his people. Jesus steps right into that imagery and is like, yeah, I'm the groom, and he kind of, you know, dot, 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 and eventually they'll begin to put the pieces together of, oh, okay, Jesus is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. That is ultimately what they kill him for, but it's, it's deeply true. But I think with, with, the, with the Pharisees, okay, when they see Jesus, he's not fasting, he's celebrating, he's partying, and they're like, why aren't you more serious? I think the, the Pharisees would have liked Jesus to be a lot more sad, a lot more somber, a lot more serious, a lot more dignity in what he's doing. Um, and Jesus just was not sad enough for them. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us as Christians um, have this, a similar view, right? Religion is to be something that is sad, somber, serious. So you've got to be at least kind of bummed out most of the time. Um, if you're going to be serious about it. Um, there's this, uh, this ancient Eastern Christian uh, uh, in Egypt uh, named Mother Sarah, okay? And so Mother Sarah lived in Egypt, and she was part of like a monastic group, so they would kind of separate from society. And her, her, um, her chambers or whatever, her room, they, they called it a cell, which is not inaccurate, um, was like in the upstairs of this whole thing, and there was a river outside and everything. But Mother Sarah was so pious. She was so godly that she never once, in all of her years living in a separate thing, she never once looked out the river, uh, looked out the window to look at the river and appreciate the beauty of it. Isn't that amazing? You guys are like, no. Uh, I called her an idiot in the first service. I will not make that mistake again because it got real weird uh, in the room when I did. Um, I feel like there were some Mother Sarah fans uh, in, the, in the crowd. But 
I feel like I read that and it makes me so sad for Mother Sarah, right? Someone that wants so bad to show her devotion to God, but does it by saying like, oh, I'm going to refuse to appreciate anything that's good or beautiful, right? I think for her, probably her idea of spirituality was like, I need, it needs to be harder, right? It needs to be, I need to suffer a little bit more. And if, I'm, if, if life is really bad, then man, God must be really happy. Like I, I feel like that's kind of the, I don't know about her heart, and we'll talk about it when we get to heaven, I suppose. But it just feels to me like um, Jesus never asked you to do that. Jesus never asked her not to look out the window and see the beauty that he put around her, right? Um, so, so like whose sense of spirituality was she pursuing? It was some weird made-up thing of like, yeah, if it's less beautiful, then it's better. That is gross, but unfortunately, I think we so often um, get in this somber mode, and, and some of us, I think, are, are way more serious than Jesus was. Uh, we're, we're way more sad, way more often. We're way more um, grieved and concerned about what's going on than I think sometimes Jesus was. We're, we're over here all worried and serious, and Jesus and his disciples are over here eating and drinking with party hats on, and they're just like, hey guys, you could be having a lot more fun if you come into the kingdom of God. I, I really think that's the picture that Jesus is giving here. The kingdom is not just something, uh, not about avoiding certain things. The kingdom is a positive thing that's to be enjoyed. Come on, join the table, join the party. There's life to be found here. When Jesus is present, we're experiencing life in this whole thing. Some of my, my favorite, like, kingdom moments where I feel like, okay, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like is um, when I go to, go, go to weddings. I, I worked for 10 years with Bible college students um, before I moved up here. And if you ever want to go to a ton of weddings, work with uh, college students for a long time, okay? Because then you move away and then you all start getting married just a bit at a time. And so you get to go to these weddings. And it's beautiful because you go and there's eating, drinking, dancing. There's, um, there's old friends you haven't seen. You sit around and you talk about like what God's been doing in your life over the years. It's like the most beautiful things. And I just sit there at these events and I'm just like, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, right? This is it. Like with, with these beautiful people and sharing what God's done and we're celebrating, it's a good thing. When we had our, our fiesta back here um, a bit ago. We're sitting there with all these lovely, all your lovely faces, right? And we're eating great food and we're t- telling stories about what God's been doing. It's like this is what the kingdom of heaven is like in this beautiful setting. I love it. There's also the kingdom in the hard moments. Um, going and praying with people, going to sit with people in really dark things. The kingdom is there as well, but I think Jesus is giving us this picture of is this reason for celebration. My presence is what we um, look to. So Jesus, this whole thing is about fasting. And um, we might be tempted to be like, okay, the, the whole point of this is we don't fast. Like, hey, stay away from fasting. It's no good. I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think Jesus is actually giving us a good reason to fast here. Um, so we, we, we celebrate Jesus' presence with us now, but we fast uh, because we're saying, he, I, I want to be reminded with my soul and with my body that, um, that I long to be with Jesus. I want that longing to kind of sink down and to remind myself that, yes, I miss him. Yes, it's better with him. Yes, I'm wanting him to be here. I don't think that that's our primary demeanor. Like, I don't think that we take on the posture of um, grieving, fasting as our primary thing, but I do think there's an appropriate place for it. I don't think, I used to think that fasting was um, about, like, making God listen to us. So it's like, okay, God, there's this thing I really want. Like, somebody needs to be healed or, or someone needs to kind of meet Jesus. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go without food so that I'm suffering. And God looks down at my sunken cheeks and, and my puppy dog eyes. And he's like, oh, you poor thing. Okay, fine. I'll give you what you're asking for. Like, I used to think of fasting like that. It is not that. It's not a way of kind of earning God's compassion. Um, 
feel bad for me, God, answer my prayer. Um, the, the other thing I think it's not, we have to be careful for, is it's not a way of, like, defeating our sin. Like, I've got this huge sin struggle, and, like, I need to defeat it so bad that I'm going to fast and really just kick it into gear. I don't think that that's what it's about either. Um, and, and the reason I say that is Colossians uh, chapter 2. Paul is talking about this kind of a thing. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not, uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to hu human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think Paul is saying pretty clearly, like, if, if, you're, if you're trying to get yourself to a place where you're living a more godly life, he's saying, this seems wise to treat your body really harshly and starve yourself and what everybody's like, th that there's no value in that. What does he say instead in the next verses in chapter 3? He goes on to say, set your mind, therefore, uh, to things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's all about the presence of God. He's the one that helps us. He's the one that guides us. So fasting at its, at its most beautiful is this reminder that um, he's with us and, and that, that like we want him with us and he's missing and so we're longing for that. So the whole thing with fasting, I think, is about longing. If you, if you want to um, do a deep dive into that, John Piper has this great book called A Hunger for God that is um, absolutely fantastic and kind of laying out what fasting is and what it isn't. So with all this, like you would think, <clears throat> stepping back to think about what fasting is, you would think that when Jesus is on earth, when God actually comes to earth and he's with us, you would think that that's when we get really serious about religion, right? So think of the Old Testament, and they build the temple, and the Spirit of God comes, the presence of God is there in the temple. It's like, okay, this is the time, guys. Like, every bull has got to be perfect. Every sacrifice we made, everything has got to be on time and perfect because, like, he's here. Let's take it seriously. Same thing with Jesus. He's coming to earth, and so you'd think while he's there, he's like, hey, guys, I'm here. Let's get fasting. Let's get serious. Let's get all this going on. But Jesus instead is saying, I'm here. Why would you fast when I'm here? Like, it, the whole thing is about me being here, and we're celebrating that, and we're noting that. So, like, I love that Jesus is just saying, like, when I'm here, fasting doesn't make sense. It's just a reminder. Uh, we go without something we need so that we're reminded that there is someone that we need. And our hunger pains remind us of our spiritual pains. It's a beautiful way to do it. So Jesus seems to expect that we'll fast sometimes. Um, but definitely not in the ways that the Pharisees did with the should and the ought and all that weight to it. All right, now he uses a fun analogy that's kind of enigmatic, um, but I think it's really powerful. Two, two illustrations he uses to explain this. This is where we'll end for this morning. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, very interesting um, couple of illustrations that he uses. Two, two basic uh, illustrations to make the point that new and old don't mix like we think they should. Okay, so the first is a patch. All right, so you get your, your jeans, and you've been wearing them and loving them, or you bought them that way. They've got a hole in them, okay? And you're, uh, you, you want to patch the hole because you don't like being in style. So you're like, okay, I'm going to patch this hole. And so you put a new, new bit of cloth on there. I'm told that new cloth is going to shrink because it hasn't shrunk yet, and it ruins the whole thing. So he's like, 
new and old, they don't really belong together. Um, at least you can't assume that they're the same. Then he uses the, the idea of the wineskin. So back then they would, making wine, they'd start with a vat and they would start uh, fermenting the wine. And then they would transfer it into um, bags of like animal skins, like leather bags that would hold the wine and it would continue to ferment in there. Um, and the, the leather at first is all like soft and pliable and everything. But then as it ages, uh, it gets more like hard and brittle and those kinds of things. Um, and so like if you think of it like, you teenagers, uh, you guys know, when you go to your grandma and grandparents' house, they have this, uh, like, really ancient Tupperware that was, like, probably old when your parents were born. And uh, it probably was really fancy at one point, but now you go there and they've got cracks all over the lids and everything else. The whole thing, like, smells like decades of meatloaf, you know, in there. And you're just like, okay, that served its purpose. It's time to, like, set that aside and let's get some new Tupperware here, you know? Like, we can afford probably some new Tupperware. <clears throat> I think Jesus is saying... Whatever's happening with me is new enough, is life-giving enough, is potent enough that, that you're not, you're not going to want to just shove it in the old thing. Actually, like in this illustration, what Jesus is concerned about is like, don't let the wine be destroyed. You know, like don't, hey, the wine's going to get out, like don't let that happen. So Jesus, Jesus gets it, you know what I'm saying? Um, but he's saying, what's happening with me is new. So you're going to need a new kind of container. Like I'm, I'm becoming the king and you're going to need a new kind of a kingdom. Don't assume that it's going to fit into all your old ways of thinking. Now, some of that is like Old Testament stuff. All the Old Testament law and everything else, he's definitely, I think, definitely leading us away from just blindly following the Old Testament laws. Um, there are some still that are like really all about following all the laws. I think there's so much to learn there and there's so much connection. I feel like, man, I feel like you guys are getting really uh, nervous about what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. This is what Jesus is saying, okay? Um, <clears throat> the Old Testament is still super valuable, all the connections, but the connection point between the old and the two and how they fit together is all about Jesus. It's all about the new wine of what he's doing. So he's telling us, be careful about the old ways of doing it. Um, so, so for example, I think we're often, we're, we're prone to just take Jesus and we slide him into whatever forms we have, whatever thoughts we have, whatever makes sense to us about the, how the world works. So wh whoever Jesus is, he's the hero of whatever cause we are fighting for. Um, this happened a lot of times, like missionaries traveling to other, other countries, other, other cultures, trying to explain who Jesus is in those cultures. <clears throat> and often what would happen is what we call syncretism, where they're taking their beliefs and they're mixing them with beliefs from this other culture, and it becomes not just Jesus as he is, but a distorted version. So in, in India, missionaries would go, and um, many people in, in India are Hindu, and uh, they have this view of, like, there's lots of gods, and then there's these avatars that are, like, appearances, manifestations of the gods. So they would go, and to make Jesus understandable, they'd be like, well, Jesus is a avatar um, for, you know, some of these other gods. And Great idea in terms of like trying to help them connect. Like, oh, okay, cool, I get who Jesus is. But actually kind of a rough idea if you're trying to really get at. That's not the way the Bible depicts Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's taking the old container and just trying to get Jesus to fit into that. Actually, with, with Islam and Christianity, there's this long history of like a thousand years where the two have really had a big impact on each other. So kind of before the Crusades, during the Crusades, after the Crusades, um, you'd have countries where the Christians are in charge and the Muslims are um, under them and times when the Muslims are in charge, Christians are under them. And what they would do is when one group kind of wins, the churches would kind of take the mosques and be like, okay, this is a church now, right? Or the, the 
Muslims would take the churches and be like, this is a mosque now, which is why if you look at like the architecture of a mosque, it looks like a lot of the architecture in the Eastern church and in the ancient church because they just adopted it, right, took it on. Um, when you see Muslims like praying on their, on their knees and on their, their faces and their hands and everything, um, it looks so like strange and different, but they actually took that from ancient Christians and just kind of adopted it into there. So this, for good or bad or whatever it is, <clears throat> My point is simply, we take our containers that make sense to us, and we're like, Jesus, just fit, fit my mold. Fit, fit what makes sense to me, you do this. So easy to point at missionaries and look at all that stuff, but it's good for us to look at our own hearts and our own situations. So I think in America, the problem we have a lot of times is we have our American dream, we have our American way of doing things, we have our American values, and we think, okay, Jesus is like the great and true American, you know? Like he's the one that's going to fight for us to, to obtain the American dream. Um, for, for most of us living in Placer County, that, that American dream looks a whole lot like Republican values, right? And so you start with a Republican platform, and Jesus is going to fit in with that perfectly. Boy, you guys are tense. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. <laughs> and uh, so we, we kind of start with our, our, our platform and our values and the way that we want to live our lives, and we kind of build a structure out of that. In our case here, it'd be like building a lifted pickup truck, you know, and, um, and it's taking Jesus, and we hand him a cowboy hat, and we slip him behind the wheel, and we're like, Jesus, this is what we want you to drive, you know what I'm saying? Um, Jesus is not Republican. He's not Democrat. Um, there's things in in in, that we value, that we care about, that we live our lives, that he, like, is deeply behind, and there's things that he's, like, take it or leave it, and there's things that he totally opposes. Um, in our American dream, the, the greed, the individualism, I think he really opposes those kinds of things. But in any case, when we start with our assumption of what's good, what's right, how we think life should be, and we try to make Jesus sit behind the wheel of that thing, um, we're missing something. I think it's the new wine in the old wineskins. It's saying to Jesus, look, you you are something new and unique. You, you're the God of the universe. You're the king of it all. And so my job is to simply see who you are and say, Lord, ch like change all of it, right? Change, all, build a whole new type of vehicle. So, so often for us in the West, it's, it's just, it's even as simple as like our, the way we do church, right? It's like you start with the shopping mall. And you're like, this is a cool place. We like hanging out here. Um, the, the, um, the entertainment and the options and all those kinds of things. And we build churches that look a lot like shopping malls or like um, Amazon and do the online version of that. Like the whole point is Jesus is making a new thing. So rather than starting with what we know, what we think, what we want, letting Jesus be the new wine that fits into new wineskins and not just fitting him into um, the way that we think he should be. So I think the real question with all this, we're, we're kind of done looking through these parts here. I think the real, the real question in all this is like as we as we continue to watch Jesus through the Gospels, and he's walking through all these things, um, we just need to ask ourselves the question, like, should I be fasting? Should I not? Should I eat with this person? Should I not? Should I do this on this day? Should I not? Like, instead of stressing about those questions, ask the question, should I, like, am I finding life in Jesus? So our, our mission as a church is we are finding life in Jesus together, and we're inviting others to do the same. So the question is, am I finding life in Jesus? And if we are, um, then that's beautiful. And if we're not, let's figure it out. Let's find what it is. But let's not just go to the old forms and assume that everything there will be great. I think fasting and eating, um, uh, avoiding eating or eating itself, there are opportunities to be shaped uh, by God, there are opportunities to be attuned to God. Like there's great value in the disciplines that we have, um, but not as a replacement for that relationship with God. Often our, our religious forms, the way that we do church, um, 
becomes like a tool that we use to shame other people or, or like a, a weapon that we use against them or a tool to, to put shame on ourselves, like a, st- a standard, like, like uh, Mother Sarah, the, don't ever look at the river outside. It's like, but, but why not? There's beauty in the river, right? So sometimes it's like getting out of our, um, our boundaries that we've drawn and our understanding of what religion is and saying, okay, like if, if my approach to religion makes a connection with God more difficult then, like, I'm misusing religion. Like, that's, that's it. Like, it's all about a connection with God. He, he exists. He's here. He's love. He's, he's laid down his life to invite you to be part of his family and to have a relationship with him. So anything we do that makes that connection to him more difficult is not the right view of what religion is supposed to be. I, I know many people, and I'm sure you do too, know people that the, the way we do church in the United States makes it harder for them to connect to God. And it, it may be, sometimes it's just the, the staleness of it. Sometimes it's the, the hypocrisy and the sinfulness in the church. Sometimes it's the dogmatism around things that don't matter. But a lot of the ways that we posture ourselves when we do church actually makes it more difficult for a lot of people that I know and love to engage with God. I had a, I had a beautiful conversation this week with a friend that is saying, like, it's, it's been a long time since I've prayed. And, and this week I tried praying. And it was weird. And it was different than I've ever done it before. But... Um, it was something, you know? And I, I feel like that is so, so beautiful. Uh, to me, that is so much better than all the fasting the Pharisees ever did. Because it's someone just saying, like, yeah, you know what? This stuff became like a dead end to me, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying and I'm seeking. And I found, I found a way to kind of make an inroad there or to try something out to find actual life in Jesus. I think it is so beautiful to let go of the things that everybody assumes you got to do. We, we put weird pressure on each other, you guys. I, I really think that's true. In the church... We put weird pressure on, on each other. Um, I, I, um, I've been praying. We started our 12 groups uh, this week. I've been praying for 50 guys to, to join those groups, and we ended up with 70 guys joining them. It's amazing. It's awesome. And, and the culture of that is like that's 70 guys in our church family that are digging into Scripture, digging into relationships with each other, um, and growing in the Lord. That's going to have a huge impact on the culture of our church as they bless other people, as they grow deeper themselves, on their families. All those kinds of things are a beautiful impact. And by the way, if you missed a sign up on that, you could still join, talk to me about it. We'd love to get you connected. But the point of it is not to look at each other and be like, hey, why aren't you in a men's Bible study? Women, why aren't you doing nurture? Why aren't you in a group? Why aren't you joining us for prayer? Like we get really judgy intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes it is just like the Pharisees where it's like, look at the group I'm a part of. You know, look at the prayer that I'm doing. Look at how, how hungry I am because I'm fasting all the time. Um, sometimes it's just well-intentioned invitation. But anyways, all I'm trying to say is all these things are means, ways to connect with God and with each other. Um, and when we turn them into something different than that, the life comes out of it. As soon as you find yourself policing somebody else and what they're doing or not doing, you know you're not taking Jesus' approach to this whole thing. And I just want to say to many of you that once upon a time, you found life in the rhythms and the traditions of the church. Like you would, you would have worship songs like we sing, and you would just connect with God. Uh, you'd have sermons, and you'd just be like, man, the Lord was just speaking to me in that. Um, prayer times, we're like, the Lord is there. And then for many of you, it's been a long time since much of that has meant much of anything. Um, where you're singing, and you just feel like you're just, just words to songs that you're singing. Uh, where you're listening, but you're like, I just, I don't know. Um, praying, and it's just silence in return. And I would just say to you, like, 
Um, it's a pretty common situation to be in. And my, my invitation is, it was never about the songs. It was never about the sermons. It was never about the prayer times. It was about the connection with God to recognize there's a God that's inviting you. And I don't know what your next step looks like. When you're in that desert place, um, I don't know what your next step looks like, but I believe that step is there. I believe God is there. I believe he's waiting. And so I would just say, keep watching, keep praying, keep looking, keep, keep conversing. I am, um, I am, more of a pastor than I am a preacher. And if you're wrestling with any of that stuff, I love talking to people about that kind of stuff. So seek me out. Um, our whole ministry staff is beautiful for that. All of our elders are beautiful for that. Um, so there's so many things you can do. So let me end it by saying it like this. Um, I, I want us to uh, find life in Jesus together. I want us to be inviting others to do the same. I want us to, to have, as a big old family, uh, a wonderful time at Disneyland. And I want the planning and the, pr- and the structure and all the kind of stuff that we do to, like, matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, to, to, to lead towards the actual experience of it. Not the stress of making sure everything goes right, but the enjoyment of a time that we can be there. And I, I believe we can have that even now. Like, even this morning. We're going to sing a couple songs. And, like, as we do, just, like... The Lord's here. So let's, let's, uh, let's see what we can let go of in our hearts and our souls, and let's um, reach out to him.